Hello and welcome to the weekly Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. It's the podcast where we try to explore things which are important uh, and underreported in the news. And we also talk about our villains and heroes of the week. Joining me in the studio today, I am delighted to have two very interesting, and I'm going to call you characters. I do think you're quite interesting mm. characters. Yeah. So we're going to start with Matt Saab Cousin, who is a former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn and is now a very fierce and successful campaigner for fairer gambling. Hello, Matt. Hello, Aisha. And we are joined by Dan Hodges, commentator for the Mail on Sunday and a very grumpy man on the old <laughs> Twitter sphere. Actually, oh, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm. I wouldn't say I'm grumpy. I have a. I have a perspective, Aisha. I have a, a perspective on certain issues, and I express myself in a forthright manner. That's I how love I would it. Like and that to. Will, we're going to have a lovely discussion about all of this. Now, we're going to start with our first underreported story. Matt, can I turn to you? Absolutely, yes. So there was a study uh, in the University of Pennsylvania that just came out, and they found that gambling physically alters people's brains, and in the same way. You know, drugs may alter people's brains and make people addicted and nicotine is an intrinsically addictive substance and that alters people's brains and makes alters your neural pathways. And actually then if you become addicted to gambling, you end up more prone to anxiety and depression. And actually I have to say one of the things I do commend the government for is their focus on uh, mental health provision. I mean, I'd like to see that kind of reinforced with actual funding and actual... Uh, steps to actually improve the access to these sorts of services, but I think that it's right that it's put on the same, uh, put on a par with physical health. And actually, uh, in this context, I mean, the government are currently reviewing gambling. It would make sense if the government is serious about preventing people falling into mental illness and addiction that they look at. I mean, the, the product I'm campaigning against, fixed odds betting terminals, where people can bet up to a hundred pounds every twenty seconds in high street shops. So I think this is a, it, it's, it's a sort of groundbreaking study in a sense, because people don't tend to think that gambling is the same as drugs or, you know, because yeah. it's not a physical substance, but actually the activity of gambling can, can physically, physiologically alter your brain. So you're basically saying that policymakers should reframe their view of gambling and look at it with the mental health implications as well. Yes, absolutely. At the moment, gambling resides at the Depart Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And there is a strong argument that that should be, at the very least, a shared responsibility with the Department for Health because of the uh, the impact it has on people's mental health. It's not just, I mean, it should be an entertainment product. We want people to just enjoy gambling. If they, if they want to gamble, they should be enjoyable. But really what we have to do is look at precisely which products are more addictive and more harmful and how much harm is associated with them. Because at the end of the day, you know, gambling like drugs, there are different products that are different levels of addictiveness. So, I mean, fob T's, fixed odds betting terminals are often called the crack cocaine of gambling, and that is because they are obviously highly addictive. And Dan, where where does the line get drawn between the government being the sort of responsible parent and um, looking after people and the, the nanny state where people, a lot of people, whether you like it or not, may well want to gamble? Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and I'm I, I'm not sure actually. I mean, I completely understand, and I, I I respect Matt's work in this area, but I have got a concern about the extent to which the state should be directly intervening in people's social habits, and to the extent that they literally dictate 
you know how much and how often they can they, they can in, engage in that activity i mean we it seems to me we have completely contradictory positions on 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 this i mean we are a nation that actually has a national lottery i mean the state you know each week actively encourages people to place their money and lose their money and gamble and yet when it comes to issues such as such as such as fob teas we then say no this is an intrinsically bad activity and one of the one of the interesting things i i, I just noticed just reading actually you know some of the some of the background on this um i mean i mean it says here that that the, the researchers here um seem to analyze people's sort of brains sort of brain reaction and say that can be the word is can be used as a marker for risk tolerance um, now, if we get into the situation where we, we're sort of analysing people's brains and on that basis sort of drawing up their risk tolerance and then presumably drawing up some form of legislation to manage um, their engagement, I think are we, not, are we not getting into slightly dangerous territory? But surely we've done that for other things where there has been harm like cigarette smoking. But to... Where we've but, measured the harm... And we've made a decision that actually we're going to take a public policy decision to restrict people's sort of behaviour or try and curb their behaviour. But that's the point we haven't, have we? There are no restrictions on the amount of cigarettes I could I could go out and buy after this after this. Interview. But we, there's restrictions on where you can can smoke, it, and that definitely has had a that's had an effect on people. Um, no, there are obviously smoking. restrictions on where we where, where, on where we can where we can smoke, and, and rightly so. But that's because of a perceived direct impact on others and that's rightly so if i if i smoke um then as a result of passive smoking your health is being put at risk if i gamble that might have a negative impact on on, on my life but that is something that i have to adopt personal responsibility for it, and i think actually that you've touched on on an error i think the real you know, my default position would be the state needs to intervene where someone's activity is having a negative effect on, on others. As soon as we get into the situation where the state is saying, "We, as a state, are going to are going to know know better than you how you should conduct your life," that's where I think we're getting into into dangerous territory. Now, I'm not saying it can't be in any circumstances, but uh, Matt, respond to that. Where's where's the kind of practical line in in the sand for in terms of policy? Well, I think it's very difficult to manage individuals and, and come up with policies that actually uh, you know, are directed towards trying to nudge people in the right direction. I think the most effective policies, if you want to reduce population level harm, is population level public health policies like uh, plain packaging for cigarettes. And actually, uh, there is there are restrictions now on how many cigarettes we can buy because we can't buy packs of 10 anymore and that was brought in because they thought that you know younger people were able to afford smaller packs of cigarettes and this was kind of a gateway I into remember smoking back in the day you could buy single cigarettes when i was going to school yeah. that's how old i am basically <laughs> well it's a filthy habit you should be ashamed of yourself. i don't i don't uh, uh, and and uh, you know i i i think that uh Problem gamblers tend to affect up to 12 other people. They will see affect their families. Uh, and it's not just about problem gambling, it's about gambling-related harm. And of course, we're never going to completely eliminate gambling-related harm. That's unrealistic. But what we can do is look at the products that are most closely associated with it and impose population-level restrictions on them. And that's why we campaign for a £2 maximum on fixed-odds betting terminals. 
Well, good luck with your campaign. And I suppose this is a very, I mean, this subject is really interesting because the thing that we have just discussed goes across everything, goes across sugar, obesity, you know, how much exercise we should be taking, managing our own public health, all that kind of stuff. And there's always the question of where the line is with the with the state. Now, turning to you, Dan, take us through your underreported story. Well, it's a very interesting one that I just, I literally sort of stumbled across uh, uh, on on the internet uh Today, actually, um, Ed Miliband uh, has been in the States and, and was at, I think it was Chicago University, uh, where he was doing an interview with uh, David Axelrod, obviously, who who famously came over, as you know, I hear at the, <laughs> the, at the axe, time, the came axe. over to assist with Labour's uh, general election campaign I've in got a very good story about the axe, I'll tell you afterwards, <laughs> Matt. <laughs> we'd, lo- we'd love that one. Oh, um, got paid a, quite a significant fee without actually producing the, the desired result. But as part of that, Ed Miliband, for the first time, spoke about Labour's ongoing anti-Semitism problem or, if you want, anti-Semitism crisis and, in my view, responded in a, in a, in a, in a very bland and ineffective way. Effectively. So, so tell, us, tell us what he said. I mean, I suppose the story hasn't been underreported. I suppose Ed Miliband as a very important figure, the first Jewish leader in, in the Labour Party, he hasn't really, it, it, he's not said anything about it. He's not said anything about it at all. And indeed, it's, you know, members of the Jewish community have actually been, been, you know, been questioning why he hasn't, he hasn't spoken out about it. And his, his, in his response, it, he, he started off with the the sort of the, the, the what I would regard as the pat reaction that, in his view, Jeremy Corbyn is not uh, an anti-Semite, um, which to me is is actually not the relevant part of the part of the debate. But he then went on to basically endorse Jeremy Corbyn's response to the crisis. Basically, cited um, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, you know pledge to get to grips with the issue. Um, in, in my view, he's not getting to grips with the issue and, and won't get to grips with the issue. And it was a very, in my view, very, very disappointing um, and frankly mealy-mouthed response from, as you say, somebody who had such a major leadership position within the within the Labour movement and the Labour Party. I mean, I just watched the, the clip. I have actually been looking out for, for something from, from Ed because he is an important, you know, he's an important narrator in this, in this whole thing. Um, I mean, I... I wasn't really that surprised by what he said. Personally, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn, and you might have a different view, Dan, but I don't think Jeremy Corbyn himself, as a human being, is anti-Semitic. Does he surround himself and does he know people, does he have supporters who have anti-Semitic views? Yes, I think, and I think that's where the problem is. And I think the speed at which this stuff needs to be sort of dealt with. But what, what did you want Ed Miliband to say? I wanted from Ed Miliband what I want from everybody in the Labour Party, which is an absolute unequivocal condemnation of the extent to which anti-Semitism is now endemic within the Labour Party. I wanted a clear acknowledgement that as things stand, Jeremy Corbyn cannot be the solution to that problem because he is at the heart of his problem both in terms of his own his own individual actions but also in terms of those he surrounds himself those who who are his supporters and those who continue to to speak in his name and it's i mean it's very interesting actually i mean i i, I you know the issue of whether jeremy corbyn personally is an, an anti is anti-semitic i mean i had always 
agreed with those who said quite clearly he he isn't. Um, it may well well be the case. I'm not entirely sure how you can look into a man's heart and come up to a definitive viewpoint on something like that. But what has definitely changed what what would have been a charitable interpretation of Jeremy Corbyn's view on this issue is is the mural issue. And, and Matt and I were having a discussion on Twitter about this today. I do not understand how anybody with any grasp of, of, of history, of racism, of you know, the, the, the crimes that have been perp perpetrated against the Jewish community could look at that mural, which was literally Nazi-era imagery, and defend it and, on, on any, and, in, and under any circumstances. Is, is smart and culturally sensitive like Jeremy Corbyn. Matt, Matt, I feel I must bring you in at this point. What, what's your take on all of this? Well, Jeremy Corbyn is not anti-Semitic, and uh, I think it's right that we accept that we have been too slow in expelling anti-Semites, people who have posted anti-Semitic things online or made anti-Semitic comments. This, you know, it's totally unacceptable. And Are you surprised by this, Matt? Because you've obviously been quite close to the the Corbyn yeah. project and the left. Did this sort of take you, were you like, wow, I, I didn't think it was going to be that bad? Or did you, as you sort of became more part of the movement, did you start seeing worrying signs of this in your journey? Uh, I think it's always been a problem on the left. Like, I think in the absence of a kind of ideological grounding and narrative about why things are the way they are, people tend to look turn to conspiracy theories and, and, and that's just totally wrong. And I'm not saying that political education is necessarily the answer, but I think it would certainly help to prevent people falling into this, not falling into this, but actually using this kind of rhetoric, which is, as I said, totally unacceptable. Look, as, as the leader of the party... There's, there are limits to what you can do. You're not this kind of uh, omnipotent autocrat at the top that can change all the rules. You, ha you have to propose rule changes to deal with this stuff. And, Matt, and, 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 he, and he did do that, and he did define, for the first time, codify anti-Semitism anti in the Labour Party rulebook and, and come up with a process for, for dealing with these cases. Now, has that gone far enough? Clearly not. And I think that everyone is in agreement on that. Um, but Matt, so, if so, when and we're probably all on the same side of this uh, on, on this bit, you know, when UKIP had all its sort of fruity kind of people making terrible, weird, awful comments, we all leapt on that. Each one of us in this room would have leapt on that and said, "Well, hang on a minute, UKIP, you're a complete shambles of a of a party because you're letting all these people say all these things." You know, we. We bear down, you know, all of us, you know, we might be on slightly different sides, but, you know, we were all cracking on saying you, you can't run a political party like that. Why is it good for the goose but not for the gander when it comes to Labour? Well, I think that UKIP, uh, by, the, by the nature of their politics, which is ostensibly xenophobic, uh, reactionary, little Englander, you know, anti-Europe, they're bound to attract people like that. So I don't think people are necessarily surprised when, you know, racists are in UKIP. It's probably, you know, fits pretty well with their ideology. But it's not acceptable uh, for racists to be a part of the Labour Party. It's nothing to do with the Labour Party and what we stand for. We're socialists and our, our struggle is a class struggle and we're struggling against the economic elite, not some kind of... You know, whatever you want to call it, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy or, or you know, yeah, Illuminati or, or Zionist. This is a this is an economic elite 
that's what we're struggling against and we're all united in that. doesn't matter what background you're from. Uh, can I just, just say in response to that, I mean, this is the thing that I find surprising. I mean, you say about ha, has it taken people by surprise. I mean, I've been writing about this ever since Jeremy Corbyn um, first stood for the leader of the leader of the Labour Party. Lots of been people have been, have been pointing to this and warning of the extent of the problem. I mean, remember, we actually had an internal investigation, a formal in investigation, which was supposed to be an independent investigation into this problem, which was the Chakrabarti report, which was a whitewash. And obviously, Shami Chakrabarti <laughs> subsequently, quite staggeringly, was then was then awarded with a, a peerage by Jeremy Corbyn him, him, himself. But, I mean, you made the point about the Illuminati stuff. That is literally what that mural showed. It was like a classic Jewish Illuminati. Trope, wasn't it? It was a trope. classic. Abs absolutely. That is Jeremy Corbyn himself. That's his own personal actions that we're talking about. That's the leader of the Labour Party. The woman who is responsible, who was responsible in the Labour Party for rooting out anti-Semitism, has just had to resign her position because she was found to have been turning a blind eye to anti-Semitism. That's Christine yeah. Shawcross. We had the report in the on the front of the Guardian last Friday, which showed that the the, the ruling Corbynite block on the NEC had been blocking action, directly blocking action against anti anti perceived anti-Semites within the Labour Party. We had the situation last uh, was it last week or was it this week? I think it was last week, where Thangham Debonair, who had attended the anti-racist demonstration, was censured by her party, had to attend a meeting in which she only narrowly defeated a vote of censure. She stood up to speak in her own defence. She was shouted down to the extent she had to leave, yeah. had to leave, leave the meeting. This is now endemic to the point... I mean, you made the UKIP example. We this week found out that Nick Griffin has now said he is prepared to vote for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. Now, when Nick Griffin endorsed UKIP, we all of us immediately pounced on that and seized on that as evidence of UKIP's racism. And that's the Labour Party we're talking about now. Just on the um, Thangham Debonair thing and the, uh, the rally that happened, Ken Loach this week um, said that people should be sort of chucked out of the Labour Party who went to that... Um, enough is enough rally. Now, I think people like you, Matt, are speaking in completely good faith about... You've been completely honest about the situation in the Labour Party. We're all absolutely dismayed about it. We want to crack on, deal with it swiftly. But when people like Ken Loach pop up and say stuff like that, how does that make you feel? I don't know exactly what Ken Loach said. Um, I didn't look at... I didn't hear him speak. It, or it's part of that but, general thing, castigating people for going to that rally, saying sure. it was all a smear against Corbyn, well, said they should be expelled. He specifically said they should. He be said that anyone should be. I think. I think what we need. I think what we need to do is, we need to separate anti-Semitism from the Israel-Palestine conflict because the two things are not related. You wouldn't if you if you went up to a Muslim and said and started criticising them for what's going on in Saudi Arabia, you'd rightly be called Islamophobic. The anti-Semitism and the debate about the Middle East is a, is two separate issues. Yeah. And I don't know whether Ken Loach, I don't, as I say, I don't know what, exactly what he said. I don't know when, when he was talking about, uh, you know, the uh, being used for political reasons or whatever he was saying. I don't know whether he was referring to the Israel lobby trying to influence Labour's policy on Israel. I don't know whether he was talking about that, which is a, is a perfect, you can be perfectly legitimate to criticise that. 
Um, and there has been investigations on that yeah. that, that, that have actually shown that that's happening. So it's perfectly legitimate to criticise that. But that's different to anti-Semitism. And what very what frustrates me the most is actually when you get these cranks and racists in the Labour Party who do not represent Corbynism, however much, you know, it, it the, the media, I think, tries to portray it that way. It's not not the case at all. They actually, when they when they come up with these anti-Semitic comments and they're you know normalised anti-Semitism amongst themselves, these kind of racist comments on online forums or whatever, actually what they're doing is undermining the pro-Palestinian cause because you're allowing it to be lab- look to, to look like it's a kind of anti-Semitic cause. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think this is a theme that will run and run um, as the weeks and months go on. Now we're going to move to the final section of the podcast where we go through our heroes and villains of the week. Now I'm going to start and my um, hero of the week is actually a constituency called Ashfield which brings together um, two people who I think have done a lot to talk about working class voices having a say. You know, we've had a lot of stuff about the gender pay gap in the last couple of weeks We've talked um, quite a lot recently about um, the government's race audit, but we're all conscious that social mobility and class is a really, really important thing. Gloria DiPiero is uh, the MP for Ashfield from a working class background. She's written a great piece in the Fabian Review where she said, look, working class people don't just want to be spoken for. We actually want to be allowed to have a voice. And I think that is so important, particularly... Um, in politics, in the media, it's hugely important as well in every walk of life. And the other person I wanted to just shout out to was James Graham, who is a playwright who went to a comprehensive school in Ashfield, went to Hull University, where I went. And he is an amazing playwright. He's just had a sort of fourth or fifth show on um, in the West End, which I went to see this week, called Quiz, which is all about the coughing army man from who wants to be a millionaire and he writes in this incredibly accessible way and he writes about modern history um contemporary issues he's very much a kind of a a sort of a writer for the people and so he is definitely my um and she are my sort of heroes of the week i don't know if you get anything you want to add to any of that Uh, on your on your heroes yeah uh, I think it's absolutely absolutely important that the Labour Party, completely as uh, Gloria Del Piero said, uh, it, it gives it gives members and working class people and people in you know Labour constituencies or whatever a voice rather than I think yeah being kind of represented uh, in a kind of detached way. I think what we've lost is particularly within the Labour Party structures. I think we've lost uh, our ability to influence and feel like we have a stake in kind of policy making. And a stake in actually something bigger. We, we, I think a lot, a lot of the Labour Party structures are actually quite top down and yeah. very corporate like. So I, I do agree with what Gloria said. Um, now, Matt, your hero of the week is a very good one. My hero of the week is Carolyn Harris. I, I know Carolyn uh, very well. I've campaigned against fixed odds betting terminals with her, and uh, uh, she was recently successful in her campaign to get the government to cover the cost of children's funerals after her uh, young son, uh, many years ago, a young son uh, died when he was very little, and they had to go into they, they got into debt to pay for his funeral. Uh, and I mean, it's a fantastic achievement by Carolyn. Not not just because she's been totally open about her past and actually had to go over some. Uh, pretty, you know, pretty horrible and she's memories. She's spoken very openly, hasn't she? She very has, movingly. yeah. 
and she's actually managed to get the government to, to pay for something, which is incredible, really, in the context. So, but I, I, I mean, when when she launched this campaign, I, I didn't even realise how bad it was. It, it does seem somewhat Dickensian in this day and age that you know bereaved families are, are in that situation. Yeah, I mean, it's the, imagine losing a child. I mean, the last thing, you, you know the worst thing ever and then you've then got to try and find the money to to have a, a funeral I mean it, so I, I mean absolutely fantastic campaign and I think she's incredibly talented as an MP and she's running for deputy leader of, the, of Welsh Labour so oh yes yeah, she, she is wins. she is she'll be definitely one to watch right now let's move on to the villains Dan now this is going to be really interesting because I think your oh. villain of the week is right here it in is. the it is. studio. It is Matt's old cousin. Oh my <laughs> he God. He is sitting here, ladies and gentlemen, it's... with his top hat, twirling his moustache, <laughs> laughing <laughs> maniacally. <laughs> and actually, it's not just Matt. It's 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 a lot of people who have decided to, tar- for reasons I generally don't understand, um, has decided to target Andrew Neil, um, the, uh, the BBC uh, presenter Andrew Neil, who they seem to regard as some pro-Tory shill, and, and are basically saying he should be he should be drummed out of the BBC now. And what's their argument? You tell me, Aisha. I, I mean, perhaps Matt can get, will get to it in a moment. I mean, the argument seems to be basically that they regard Andrew as being biased and and being, as I say, pro-Tory, anti-Labour, anti-Corbyn, pro the right, anti the left. Now. Absolutely everybody, absolutely everybody I know um, who I would regard from a swathe of, you know, the sensible left all the way across the sensible right, people of differing political persuasions, all regard Andrew Neil as probably the premier premier political broadcast journalist, somebody who without fear or favour holds politicians of all political persuasions to account. Um, But he... I, uh, my argument would be he, he is insufficiently pro-Corbynite. <laughs> and this is a trend that we are now seeing consistently, that anyone who is not does not join in the, the, the cheers of old Jeremy Corbyn is immediately targeted and, vil- and vilified by Corbyn supporters. So I've pondered this um, long hard before I bring Matt in, and I feel really, really torn on this because I, I completely agree with you. I think Andrew Neil is this country's best political interviewer by a country mile. And when I, in my previous life as a political advisor, the many hours I spent prepping politicians, the one person who you would fear the most would be Andrew Neil. And in fact, it was like an unspoken rule that quite a lot of politicians just would never, ever go in his programme. And I remember speaking to some of the researchers who worked around him at the BBC, and they said that they would do, they would have their best teams preparing his packs and they'd go and do a briefing session with him, and he still knew more than they did because he's the kind of guy that gets up an hour before everybody else, goes to bed an hour later. He just does so much work. He is absolutely kind of unrivaled. Having said that, I do, and even though I'm a huge fan of his, I do sometimes look at his Twitter feed and I think that is like clearly, you know, he's not neutral in what he thinks, particularly on things like Brexit and stuff. And actually, you know, is, is that... Is that right? I, I Even though I completely think he's brilliant, I do sometimes question that. I mean, you don't see John Humphreys. I mean, you, you actually people do argue that John Humphreys has got a huge amount of sort of bias as well. That is something that I have grappled with, even though I think he is a fantastic, fantastic interviewer. 
Matt, what, what's your view? Well, we know what you're, but tell us well, what your view is. I, look, I think if, if let's imagine for a second, Owen Jones was made the presenter of Daily Politics, the, the flagship I'd just like to say, um, Dan Hall just saw the colour has drained from his yeah, face no, 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 at this just, point. Just, 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 just hear me out for a minute, right? Imagine if Owen Jones was the presenter of the Daily and the Sunday Politics and the Week or whatever, right? It would be the end of the BBC because Dan's newspaper and the right-wing press would throw the kitchen sink at the fact that this left-wing uh, prominent activist has become uh, the presenter of the BBC political output. How on earth can it possibly ever be objective? Owen Jones is the presenter. Now, this is not to say that I don't admire Andrew Neil greatly because I think he's incredibly talented and incredibly skillful and very good at what he does. But what I think is a legitimate point to make is that a left-wing version of Andrew Neil would never be tolerated on the BBC. And actually, it's structural pressures on the BBC from the likes of the right-wing tabloids that have led to a situation where they felt like they have no choice but to employ someone like Andrew Neil, with his Adam Smith Institute tie on and who's the chair of The Spectator, because they feel like, OK, we're not going to get attacked for having him as the presenter, but we would get attacked if it was a left-wing But person. Matt, is your beef then... Do you think the BBC should just sack him on those grounds? Or are you saying you want to see his equivalent? You want to see, you think the BBC should equivocate that by putting someone like Owen Jones and giving him lots of airtime? What, what, what do you want the BBC to do? Look, when, when, I, when I write about politics, everyone knows where I'm coming from. I'm Corbyn's former spokesman. Everyone knows I'm like a supporter of the Corbyn project, if that's what you want to call it. So everyone knows that's the perspective with it from which I'm coming. Uh, with the BBC, if you're coming from a perspective that is supposed to be neutral and objective, and you employ people like Andrew Neil, I'm afraid you're opening yourself up to criticism. So do you want them to so, stop? Do you want them to not employ Andrew, people like Andrew Neil, or do you want them to employ more people like you and Owen Jones? I have said in the past that I think that what they should do is stop trying to be objective because that is impossible. You cannot have people who have come from different political traditions. I'm not just talking about Andrew Neil. There's people like Nick Robinson, who's a conservative, the chair of the conservative Oxford University Conservative Association. These are people who are interested in politics. That's why they're political journalists. It's impossible for them to be objective. You can't just square, it's a square peg in a round hole. What you need to do is just have balance by the people you employ, but be honest about their politics. Be honest. This, okay, this guy's a Tory. This guy's you know, a Labour supporter. That's balance, if you want to go for balance. But, but there's a number of points. Firstly, we have all agreed that Andrew Neil is excellent at his job. Yes. That's the first thing. So Correct. if he's excellent at his job, I think he should be allowed to continue to do it. Second point, in, with, with, with respect, Matt, you and Owen are campaigners, all right? You, you are active political... You are political activists. You are still political activists. Andrew Neil has political views, but he is not a political activist. He's not somebody who's going to go out this weekend and go campaigning for any political party. If he does that, then correct, he is in breach of BBC guidelines. He may have a particular view on Brexit, he has a particular view on a number of issues, but they are not party political viewpoints. He does not pursue a party let's political say, take agenda. The, but take just on the Brexit thing, which is you know the issue of the day. I mean, even people like Alastair Campbell and Andrew Donis are now going nuts at the BBC saying, you know, it's all too... Um, pro Brexit, so even though that's not a political party, you know he does have a very clear view on that. 
But what, Andrew Adonis? Andrew Neil. Andrew, what, Andrew Adonis is, but, sorry, did you say? Andrew Adonis is having a go at the BBC yes, for but being Andrew, too with respect, pro with Brexit. To, yeah, but with respect to Andrew, Andrew's, Andrew's just completely lost his marbles over this. I mean, Andrew is basically someone who is absolutely virulently opposed to Brexit and is ranging around attacking anybody who he thinks in any way doesn't doesn't share his doesn't share his viewpoint. The idea we should be taking Andrew Adonis's view on 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 how the BBC reports this stuff is absolutely ridiculous. So what do we think the um what do we think the solution is? Do you th- well I also I mean Andrew Neil has he's limited the amount of TV shows he does at the moment. He doesn't do the Sunday politics. No, that's right. He doesn't do that. Uh, and anymore. he doesn't actually do the daily politics. <laughs> but hang on, why, why, why we why we suddenly why have we suddenly reached a consensus that there is a problem that needs to be addressed here? Nothing needs to be done. No, Andrew no, no. Neil is the best broadcaster. The BBC, <laughs> despite its faults, is still an objective broadcaster. And this is what happens, you see. This is how it works, and it's very clever. You make the accusation. Some people agree with it, some people defend it and then you you come to a conclusion that is somewhere in the middle which is well the accusation's been made it might not be completely true but there's obviously something in it so let's let's deal with it now that is a very, the, the reality is I mean, as Dan, we've that's, said, that's that's with most i mean you do that as well i mean that's the that's the stock and trade of what politics is like i mean you know that's sort of the political warfare from from both sides one right, that's side fine, but let's acknowledge it, but let's acknowledge what exactly aisha and that's exactly what it is it is political warfare being waged by the Corbynites against journalists who that who don't agree with Jeremy Corbyn. That's absolutely I, I, right. I, just, I don't really buy the idea that Andrew Neil's not a political campaign. I think any, if anyone's in any doubt, they should just look at his Twitter feed. Very pro-Brexit. I mean, that's a very political issue. Um, and you know, look what what, where he, what speeches he's given, what uh, you know, what he's said publicly, um, what he's written. He's, he's clearly coming from a political tradition and. I think we should be free as licence payers to criticise the BBC on the basis of its impartiality, objectivity and who it chooses to employ. Well, again, I'm sure um, slagging off the BBC will continue <laughs> to run as a theme. All I would say is time immemorial, everybody has a pop at the BBC from both the right and the left, which probably means it's kind of doing um, the right thing. And then finally, Matt, your, uh, your villain of the week, which I have some sympathy for. Ah, yes, uh, it's um, Simon Franks. Now, there's a story in The Observer on Sunday that Simon Franks, who was the founder of Love Film, uh, is going to start a new centrist party. Now, when you talk about centrism, you talk, you, really people are talking about, I think, what is an outdated uh, view of what the political spectrum is. They're, they're talking about a party that is uh, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, really where sort of the Lib Dems are. Um, and... I just don't understand how how out of touch you have to be to re- to think that what has got us into the problems that this country's facing uh, actually the solution is based on that very model that neoliberal model that we've been you know that's that's actually given us housing crisis stagnant wages low economic growth a current account deficit so uh, you know we're importing far more than we're exporting it's been a it's been a disaster regional inequality so the public, the real public centre of ground, the centre of gravity is actually with Labour's policies. If you look at the polling on Labour's policies, they're all very popular. 
that is that is where the public are. They they so that's really the centre ground. So this idea that you can kind of just rebrand the Lib Dems because actually it's a problem of branding and communication, and we'll just get David Miliband to come over because he's quite slick, and you know we'll just sort of sell cent- what we think centrism is, and and that that that's what the public will vote for is incredibly naive. And I think there's a <laughs> the reason he's my villain of the week is there's much better uses for fifty million pounds. Dan. I actually find it quite disturbing, actually. I mean, I don't think the political party will get off the ground. But I think, again, this is just another example of what is actually becoming a quite disturbing intolerance. If he wants to set up a political party because he doesn't think his views are represented by either the Conservative Party or the Labour Party, in a democracy, not only is that his right, that is something I think that should be encouraged. I mean, I personally... I'm struggling because I don't think there is a party that actually represents my views. And the idea that if if somebody does go down that democratic route and does try to set something up, that they are a villain, I actually think it's quite disturbing. So I think my take on this, I suppose villain might be a bit strong, but I just think the whole thing will be doomed for some of the reasons that um, Matt says, although I sort of disagree that... um, Being in the centre of politics is the root of all evil. I think a lot of the trouble that we're in now is actually because of the global financial crash. What I do have sympathy for is I do think that a lot of people felt that the Labour Party did lose its way and that we were all a bit the same as everybody else. And it was a bit of a sort of a, you know, a kind of a, a corporate approach to things rather than actually what our kind of values were. But I just think at the moment, my problem with this idea, if somebody was to come along who was a proven kind of leader in politics but had just had enough with either the Liberal Democrats or the Conservatives or the Labour Party and they said, right, I'm going to go it alone with some other people. Here's my vision. Here's what I'm for. I would be like, yeah, let's have a look at it. But I just think a bunch of people trying to sort of recreate the bygone magic of something that happened in 1997, I'm afraid... Those days have gone and and the idea of David Miliband popping back like Bobby Ewing in the shower, it's just like, it's just, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. I mean, David couldn't even beat his brother. I don't think he's going to come back now and be the sort of great white hope. And I do think that there are a lot of people like Dan who are politically homeless. And I suppose, you know, that's, that's the great conundrum. But the Liberal Democrats are not scratching that itch for people. No. Dan will always be welcome in the Labour Party. Thank you very much. Oh, and Thank you very much, Matt. That... That's, that's, I, I'm touched if, <laughs> if I will have, a, have to reject your invitation. <laughs> well, look, on that note of very kind of civil uh, brotherly, courtesy, brotherly, brotherly brutalism love, um, just a big, big thank you to my two guests, Dan Hodges and Matt Zab-Cousins. I've been Aisha Hazarika. Thank you for listening to the Unheard Weekly podcast and I will speak to you next week. 